0: There's a saying, you know, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it, and maybe all of these things together haven't happened, but populism has happened, uh, negative interest rates have happened, uh, a lot of these individual factors have happened. You're about to hear my conversation with Nelson Arruda. We talk about
1: the importance of asset allocation, why diversification is important and somewhat misunderstood. We talk about value, macro, and sentiment, and how those factors drive all asset classes. We also get his take on the current market environment and conclude with a series of recommendations. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to Bytes & Insights, the podcast designed to give you insights on how our investors manage client money. My name is Matthew Schnurr and I'm excited to have Nelson Aruda join us today. Nelson is the lead portfolio manager on our Symmetry, ETF portfolios, monthly income portfolios, and two of our liquid alt products. Nelson, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, Matt. It's nice to be here. I look forward to a wide-ranging conversation. Let's start off with talking about asset allocation as a whole. When I think about asset allocation, I think most investors believe that it is perhaps the most important decision that they make. I think you'd probably agree with that. But tell me what you think about asset allocation and how you think about it in managing those portfolios.
0: Yeah, I think uh, first talking about uh, how investors think it's important. I think when when you meet them and you talk to them, they'll agree. Uh, But one thing I noticed, the time that they spend thinking about asset allocation is probably less than they do when thinking about manager selection. And the stats are clear that asset allocation kind of dominates your portfolio. So it's a very important topic. Um, But, you know, if we look at how people think of asset allocation, there's a desire and a kind of a need to simplify it. Uh so people think 60/40 or they think 10, 100 minus your your years your age uh and those are basic things and and some of them work for a lot of people. Okay. Um but the way to think about asset allocation I think you got to start with two principles, right? Uh you got to think about what the risk tolerance is for that client. And that's a vague term. We'll, we'll get into that. And then what's their required return or what's their cash flow requirements? Where, where are they in life? Uh, so about the risk tolerance, I think, you know, somebody who's 80 uh, and retired might have a much higher risk tolerance than somebody who's 25. And I think a big factor for that is, well, what's their wealth like, you know? what's their horizon like an 80 year old who's very well off and has a lot of children and grandchildren uh, and their horizon is not 10 years. Their horizon is 70 years. And they're thinking about how do I situate my family for success later? Uh, And that 20 year old who has a a big future ahead of them, uh, you know, let's paint the picture of, you know, somebody who's immigrated to Canada uh, they are, uh, you know, in a different place financially and they might not have a high risk tolerance. They'll have a lot of future cash flow requirements. Uh, and so that will complicate a lot about that risk tolerance view. So incorporating all these things gets you to a risk profile uh, of where a client is. So that's why I think a lot of these simplifications um I think are useful for the average person sure. to think about it. There is a relationship between age and and how much risk you can take, but there's a relationship between wealth, a relationship between the type of job you have, the the type of exposures you have. You know, if you have a job in finance, you know, your portfolio performing well and you performing well are going to be tied together. Right. So you got to understand that. But all these things kind of complicate it, but that's going to define your risk profile. From your risk profile... Well, uh, it's really about getting the amount of return you need. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in an extreme case, say somebody's required return in reality is 3% or 4%. Um, You know, they don't have children and their time horizon is relatively um, medium term. Uh, Then they could have a very high risk profile. They could be willing to take a lot of risk, but that's just unnecessary for what they have to do. So you got to put these two things together. Uh, And then once you've done that, once you understand their risk profile, then you can sort of think about asset allocation. Right,
1: and so maybe, maybe to expand on that a little bit more, sure. what you've just talked about—understanding client risk profiles, uh, their required rate of return—something yep. that we rely on our financial advisors uh, to really work with clients because yep. it's individualized. Uh, you're running these portfolios uh, that uh, then people purchase in order to hit that required rate of return with a uh, an appropriate level of risk. How do you think about? asset allocation, or perhaps diversification is the right question within those portfolios.
0: Yeah, so uh, what we do, and you're right, the, the advisor's really bucketing those clients into risk profiles. So we get the risk profile. We don't have to worry about that, but it's a big part. Right. And then with that risk profile, what we're trying to do, and it depends uh, on the product, but we'll take Symmetry as an example. Sure. We're trying to get the best return for that risk profile. And uh, you know the asset allocation. There's a lot of ways you can get that, and you're trying to get as much diversification while not sacrificing absolute returns. So uh, people talk about risk-adjusted return, and I'll give you two examples. So you know if somebody's getting eight uh, percent return, um, but it's relatively volatile, or somebody's getting two percent return and it's very smooth, that two percent return might be better risk-adjusted return. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is 2% return doesn't necessarily meet a client's return objectives. So pure risk-adjusted return isn't a great way to look at it, but also pure absolute return isn't a good way to w- look at it as well. Uh, so for symmetry, we look at both. Uh, the way we build portfolios is trying to achieve that balance. We, we understand that you know, f- for certain risk profiles, we want to hit a certain risk Uh, A certain return target. And then once we've met that target, once we think the the return can can be a reasonable amount of return, then we'll look at how we can better balance the risk-adjusted performance. And so, uh, you know, maybe 8% uh, requires too much risk. Uh, And then we'll look at asset allocation, looking at different asset classes beyond just simply equity and fixed income. Uh, But, you know, there is a lot of levers in this area. And so you can use a mix of all those levers to achieve better risk adjusted return while still uh, meeting that client required return.
1: Right. Uh, I'd like to focus in a little bit on diversification. You touched on it briefly in that last answer. Um, When I look at symmetry portfolios, we'll stay with that, uh, that line of portfolios. If you look through you can see thousands of names within the symmetry portfolios and I I realize that diversification is important, but there's also a concept of over-diversification. Uh, and when you achieve over-diversification, you end up with sort of beta or market return. How do you balance those two concepts? Uh, and what are some of the uh, ways to actually measure diversification or over-diversification? Uh, is is number of uh, security holdings an appropriate measure? Or how do you think about that?
0: Yeah, so uh, over-diversification, I, I do find is a weird concept. I think... Uh, A better way to do it is how correlated or how close you are to the index. We call that tracking error. Um, So there's also a concept of uh, looking at the amount of uh, names. uh, And I, I get that. And I think when you're looking at a fundamental manager and some people say, well, you know, fundamental manager's has four hundred names in in their portfolio. How could they possibly doing be doing uh, a good job on four uh, hundred? And I think a lot of that over diversification comments come from that. And um, uh, but from the asset allocation sense, it's a different world, right? So. Uh, We're picking, we may have thousands of investments, but we're picking from a world of hundreds of thousands of investments. And, you know, it depends on the investment that you're making. So when we're looking at a fundamental, say, growth manager in Canada, uh, we'll look at their ability uh, and their capacity to handle the amount of names that they're covering. And so, you know, if they're covering 40 or 50 and they, they're well-staffed and, and we think they can really do deep dive in all of that, that makes sense. Uh, but when we're looking at making investments in very competitive markets, take the U.S. large cap, it's a traditional example. S&P 500 has 500 names in it, Right. Uh, so if we think an investment in U.S. large cap where we're not looking t- for a lot of active right. uh, return, we're looking for that passive return. Well, when we buy that, we add 500 names. Sure. Uh, if we are looking at uh, U.S. investment grade. Uh, and some of that is a passive, well, those indexes have thousands of names. Um, And so when you're making passive investments, you're going to get a lot of names, but the beta is what you're looking for in those very efficient markets. Right. Uh, So to look at symmetry that is in dozens of different asset classes, many different areas of credit, looking at the total number of names from that standpoint uh, doesn't make sense it's kind of hard to interpret uh, and number of names is a, a kind of has a lot of problems with it you really want to look at how much tracking error uh, a manager is taking uh, against their benchmark and so I've seen a place where you know they'll have a hundred names but they'll have a lot of tracking error and somebody with 30 or 40 names will have less tracking error uh, and those what's driving that is that 30 or 40 names. They're big companies, they're part of the index their weights are very similar to what the index is. Uh, and so number of names is definitely not uh, a good indication of, of how close you are to the index.
1: So you think about it more in the active risk sort of space tracking error we, when you're constructing the portfolio.
0: Yeah, we we really try to do that. Um, it's, look, it's, it's a number, it's an imperfect statistical result, sure. right? We get that. But uh, the number of names is also an imperfect and even less significant statistical result. So we'll look at it in, in tracking error. Great. Uh, as I said at the top, uh, you do manage a, a
1: lot of different products. Um, and I want to keep this conversation sort of at a higher level. And I, when I think about your process, and, and we've uh, had a chance to discuss this, you really break it down into three, what I'll call major factors uh, that you look at. One being value, one being macro, and the other being sentiment or trend. Yeah. And those apply across various different asset classes uh, when you're managing portfolios. How did you First of all, we'll we'll dive into each of those uh, different factors, but maybe I'd love your uh, thoughts on how you came up with those three macro factors to begin with.
0: Well, uh, I'd love to take credit uh, for that, but uh, these are not invented by me. And and to be honest, it's a concept that's so old um, that I wouldn't know who actually came up with it. But when we do talk and so... um, When we do talk to other managers, other macro funds, other asset allocators, there's a common theme, right? And so if you think about what drives the price of any asset, any asset, I think everybody's on board with the value, right? There's a concept of discounted cash flow. How much money uh, am I going to get by holding this asset? And what's the difference between that and and what its current price is? Valuation is not a controversial thing. I think we all understand that the macro environment drives asset prices, right? Uh, If we're in a recession, a lot of asset values go down, uh, not necessarily from valuation standpoint, but those macro environment themes, business cycle drives prices. Uh, So, you know, what is left and is kind of this unknown magical thing uh, we call sentiment, but uh, you can almost think of it as the waves of the market or the noise caused by Twitter uh, or <laughs> in, in the current environment in especially. the current environment, right? So uh, it's it's almost a fear, uh, a bull versus bear trade-off. Right. You know, people have uh, feelings about where the market is going to go. And trades can become popular and crowds can move markets. Uh, and so that's kind of the plug. So I think the other two value business cycle are very fundamental in in how they drive markets. And sentiment is that kind of catch all mysterious thing that we know. Uh, and I think everybody, uh, whether you're a uh, fundamental manager, quantitative macro guy, stock selection guy, you, you know that how people feel about things, sure. how the news cycle is f- making people feel about things, that drives prices.
1: So to start with value, let me push back a little bit on what you were saying, it being obvious that that's a a factor. Yeah, push Uh,
0: back. I love pushback.
1: Excellent. Uh, Since the great financial crisis, it seems as though value, uh, what I think of traditional value, so things with low price to book, low price to earnings, those types of stocks particularly, uh, haven't done well. Uh, And it's been a market that's been driven by growthy or or more growth-oriented securities. Yep. So, with value as a as a primary factor, how do you think about investing in a market that's been dominated by growth? Uh, and I guess what gives you conviction that value uh, is an appropriate measure to continue to look at.
0: Yeah. So we look at everything with those three lenses. So the way to evaluate any one of them is uh, is to kind of think of everything else in in neutral. So look, if if uh, the world is in a neutral state and you are looking at two, uh, two assets and their discounted cash flows, the money you're gonna make from those two assets are the exact same, well, the cheaper one is the better investment, right? If you know that, if you know those discounted cash flows are coming the same, uh, then they should have the same price. And if they don't, you need to take advantage of that. It's just, it's an arbitrage opportunity. Uh, over recent history, uh, say man, it's not recent. Now it's been like ten years. Right, right. It's been a run, uh, and valuation, and one I think is a problem is how people look at it, uh, and and two, it's it's macro has been driving a lot of the views. So when people think value. One, it's uh, some people think of it as a his, use historical measures. So what's their book to price? And book to price is very much a backward looking thing. Uh, and even current earnings yield is uh, is a backwards, somewhat backwards looking thing. When macro is driving the economy, when interest rates in the future, Um, go low, when you have that entire interest rate curve lower, then the value of those future cash flows increase substantially. And so if you think about a pie uh, that defines what a company's worth, in a neutral stage, those future cash flows are worth X. But when you're in an extremely low yield environment, those future cash flows are worth much, much more. They take a much bigger piece of the pie. So It's kind of simply growth companies that have a higher loading on those future cash flows are going to benefit more uh, from a low interest rate environment because they have those future cash flow loadings. And so this has been a great environment for uh, those with that type of profile. Um, But unless you think uh, interest rates will Continue to go down because to keep benefiting it, it has to continue to go down. Uh, then, uh, then I think value in some ways this is a bit cyclical. Value um, because uh, it's been hurt so much will likely uh, have a time where it's going to outperform. Somewhat unpredictable when that's going to happen. Um, or, or but what you want to do and what you want to avoid doing is. Getting caught up in recent success, right? Uh, I like value. I like growth. I think putting them together in a balanced portfolio makes sense. Some work well in, good, in certain environments, and some work uh, the other one works well in another environment. Uh, and so that balance, I think, is important. Right.
1: Uh, thanks for that. Uh, macro uh, is a, another factor that we've identified as important to your process. Macro is a very wide term. Yeah, it, I'm assuming it comes with all sorts of conflicting signals. How do you think about analyzing all the macro information that's coming in through your models, and how do you interpret that and make selections within your portfolio?
0: Yeah, so uh, you're right. Macro is a very big topic, and uh, I'll try to simplify it. So uh, what we buck in in macro is one, th- thoughts about interest rate policy. And, um, and then economic growth uh, and where that growth is. Those two are inherently tied together, right? So the central bank will try to use interest rate policy to, um, to motivate growth in the direction that they want. So sure. They do come together, but they can be different. Uh, so, you know, from an asset allocation standpoint, we want a global picture and somewhat also by region of what's going on. So interest rates drive everything they drive bonds they drive equities uh, and so we are processing uh, a lot of data because it's it's the global economy so statistical agencies, um, uh, uh, just market sales data all of all of this globally we're trying to process to get a view on where interest rates are going. Uh, it's it's a hard job but that's uh, and there's just a tremendous amount of data on on that so we are uh, incorporating the use of a lot of computer technology having all these things in your head is very difficult sure some some person who can process it can process a lot of it they sound interesting but a computer can just do this much better than anybody can So we rely on that quite a bit, uh, and also where growth is coming, right? So we know there's a lot of engines outside of uh, interest rates. Uh, The consumer is a big engine. Uh, Corporate spending is a big engine. Uh, So understanding where those are, both globally, to give you a sense of where general equities and fixed income is going, but also regionally, right? So how North America is doing versus Europe, how Asia is doing versus uh, South America. These are all things that we kind of need to understand for us to move asset allocation and add value right makes sense and uh i look forward in the next segment
1: uh, to getting your views on the current macro environment since it's uh, rapidly changing it seems and very interesting Uh, but before we do that we'll move on to uh, sentiment uh, or trend Uh, you've described it as sort of the plug uh, factor for lack of better words Um, given that it is it seems like it's difficult to measure uh, sentiment because it's not um, tangible How do you go about trying to model that and try to understand and make investment decisions by looking at that segment?
0: Yeah. So, uh, so what you're doing, and this is for sentiment, you're trying to look for the results and, uh, it's very hard hard to understand the reason. So, um, you can look at things like, uh, you know, there's a simple price trend that people look at and, uh. It's a funny thing that momentum has worked for 200 years. I don't love that that's true, but it is true. So you got to pay attention to that. Uh, But also flow data, understanding where assets and dollars are moving. uh, That can give you an idea of where the market is or where it can continue to grow. So, uh, you know, think about uh, how price appreciation happens. You need a marginal buyer. So uh, for... Toronto house prices to go up. Somebody has to come in willing to pay the extra dollar that the sure. other person wasn't. Uh, and what can happen, and both for sentiment, is people can feel left out and you see uh, you see flows, you see price trends, you see a lot of these things happen, uh, but there isn't infinite people. Uh, and so you need to be cognizant that that marginal buyer has to exist, right? Uh, and so it works both ways, and you want to also look at crowding. Uh, and when you don't have that marginal buyer, although the trends look very positive for an asset in that in that scenario, um, when they don't have the marginal buyer, uh, buyer, that trend can reverse very very quickly. Uh, so that's what I mean by uh, looking at sentiment. Uh, you, but you are kind of forced to look at the result. Um, okay it's uh, you can look at some natural language processing getting the news cycle and understanding that and that can play a role uh, and that will correlate to uh, trend not necessarily crowding um, but those are the two kind of dynamics uh, it's the crowd moving forward and then the crowd just running away So
1: thanks for going through the value, macro, and sentiment uh, pieces. I think what might really help bring this to light is using those three, uh, macro, sentiment, and value in an example. I know that currency management is something that you do in all of the different portfolios that you manage, whether it be symmetry, whether it be some of our liquid alternative uh, products where there's a segment for currency. Give us a brief overview of what your objectives are for currency management, and then tell us how those three major factors uh, feature within your decisions on currency.
0: Yeah, so uh, currency is an interesting uh, area for us, and for us, it's a big deal. So currencies, for us, have two objectives. Uh, The first is it's a risk in your portfolio. It's unavoidable. So either you're hedged or unhedged. One of those is going to work out better than the other. So it's going to drive returns. You have to do something about it. So we think of currency, objective one, understanding and managing that that risk. And for us, and I think what differentiates us a little differently, is that we also look at it as a source of return. So for all of our funds, except for maybe the liquid alts, we see currencies in both of those. Uh, so for symmetry, we run a currency overlay, uh, and using currencies to both manage the risk of the total fund, but add uh, add return that's generally uncorrelated to what else is going on in symmetry, has been a big thing for us and has added value for for quite some time. I think you know I have a bit of a background in currency doing that at CPP, and that's a bit of a differentiator for us. Um, Now, I will just touch on what we do on, on alts for the liquid alts funds. We see currency as an asset class where we can generate returns. So it's, uh, it's a return driver, it's less about migrating risk, it's looking at DM and EM currencies, and we're managing that to bring an uncorrelated return stream to those funds. So it's a bit different there.
1: Got it, so there's two different strategies with currency. When we're talking about the symmetry portfolios or ETF portfolios, you're looking for a combination of risk mitigation with some alpha potential. Within the context of the liquid alt, it's it's far more about alpha potential, uncorrelated sources of return, is that right?
0: that's uh, that's exactly right yeah so uh especially for adding value you know you talk to managers a lot of fund managers there uh it's not a big thought uh for for them it's not uh, they they think of it as very defensively. They they right. just don't want currencies to hurt them. Uh, and we take it to the next level. We think currencies is a place where you can add value. Uh, there's a lot of uh, parties in there that are not profit motivated. You can think about central banks. Um, and so uh, leveraging that, I think, really can improve the risk adjusted performance of a portfolio.
1: Makes sense. So so talk to me about the value, macro and sentiment components and how you view them within the context of currency.
0: Yeah. So uh, those three components, I think, drive all assets, including currencies. So, uh, you know, if you look at a currency, you know, if you want to think about value in a context, well... You know, there's a concept of that uh, goods and services between countries should be uh, similarly priced or else you'd import or export them. Uh, There's also an idea of trade balances and current account balances. And, uh, you know, you hear uh, talk about the U.S. about Chinese currency manipulation and things like that. Uh, So there's an understanding that trade also defines a lot about where currencies can be valued and understanding where that is. Um, and the idea that it will return to fair value can help your investment process. Um, On to macro, um, where, where different currencies are, where those countries are in their business cycle, can drive currency value so we see this all the time Uh, central banks come in they cut interest rates or an economy is slowing then the central bank is responding that cut in interest rates in uh, often especially uh, we feel in Canada will lower the exchange rate of that currency so understanding where the countries for these currencies are in their business cycle can help you forecast uh, medium term movements in that currency we use that and also sentiment uh, so uh, I would say sentiment can drive currencies as uh, as fear and greed balance out and so an example of that I remember uh, the Swiss franc during uh, during the beginning of the European crisis right and so what you had you had a lot of flow out of the euro into the Swiss uh, Swiss aggressively appreciating it. And, you know, it's not that the Swiss was undervalued and it's not the Swiss market uh, was doing very well. Uh, they trade a lot with euro. So the Swiss economy wasn't uh, in the greatest of spots. But what that was is fear. Uh, People concerned about uh, holding euro or holding European assets during that crisis. And that fear caused flow uh, into Swiss. And so that's an example where sentiment and concern about the the future, you could argue some of that's macro as well, uh, caused a run up in that currency. So we use all three of these things. Uh, a s- macro is a big driver of currency returns to forecast where currency markets are going to go. What's nice is what drives currencies. There's a lot of similarity. So if you have a very good macroeconomic model, that'll translate to several currencies. There are outliers. Um but, you know, a model to understand the European Union's currency uh, also tends to work well for the British pound and, and things like that. They'll, they'll have similar drivers uh, where you get outliers are commodity currencies. So Canada, uh, right. Norway, uh, Australia to a less extent. Um, but you can incorporate those differences.
1: Currency is one thing that I know that uh, you actually started managing prior to join McKinsey, Uh when you joined uh, CPPIB. Uh, currency was one of the asset classes you looked at. If I look at your team, you can see various people with pension uh, experience uh, on the team. Why do you think that experience is important? Uh, and uh, and how do you see that uh, improve your process when you come to more of a mutual fund or liquid alternative fund?
0: Uh, well, I think uh, looking at institutions, uh, institutional investors like CPP or like teachers or like case, uh, they operate in the in a much less constrained world. Um, Meaning that the investment strategies that they think make sense, they will invest in. So uh, it's less regulated from that standpoint. So they'll be closer to uh, what the sort of the cutting edge of investment strategies are, the cutting edge of risk management practices are. That's one thing. Uh, On the other side of that, Although they're not regulated explicitly, when they make a mistake, though, uh, you know, uh, they'll be front page news, and sure. everybody, everybody will hear about it. Uh, so that's an interesting balance because they'll be out in the cutting edge, but they will work extremely hard on filtering out what is just this new hot topic. You know, think CDOs during the financial crisis, right. Versus what really are interesting breaking through trends? Uh, whether that's you know private investments, private debt, um, uh, more sort of diversifying asset-backed securities in the insurance space, things like that. Things that that were not traditionally investments for regular asset managers, but give great diversifying uh, streams of income. Uh, so getting exposure to that, I think, really brings a lot of direction to where you want to go when you get into the mutual fund space. Um, and another thing is, you know, when you're part of a big plan like that, uh, you meet essentially the best of the world. So CPP just broke $400 billion. It's an amazing number. Um, but you know, they invest in a lot of other managers. So uh, talking to the best hedge funds in the world, uh, talking about their practices, um, and it's not a Canadian thing, it's a very much a global thing, right. uh, gives you kind of an insight of how, uh, what the best practices are, not normally in what you're doing, uh, but what people uh, are doing in, in areas that you don't normally invest in. And that kind of exposure is very valuable.
1: Makes sense. Uh, And you're able to take those best practices, uh, the best parts of them, and incorporate them into your process here at McKenzie, presumably.
0: Yeah, we do... we do everything that we can. There are areas that mutual funds are uh, slightly more restrictive in, in the case of private assets. So and you don't have a piece of the four
1: hundred and seven and symmetry or anything.
0: Yeah. Like that. So if they offer me a piece of the four hundred and seven, although the size that even a nine billion dollar fund could buy would not even move the dial for a six four hundred billion dollar fund. It's not even probably worth their time. Sure. But um, but absolutely, yeah. So. A lot of the practices they do for portfolio construction, uh, outside of private assets, what they do for asset allocation, those practices uh, can translate directly to what we do here, and we—that's exactly what we do. Great. Uh,
1: from your time at CPP or or otherwise, give me some of your mentors. How did you sort of get started in the business? Who do you who inspired you?
0: Yes. Yeah, so um, so. In terms of mentors, uh, so I worked, my first job in CPP, I worked for uh, Alain Bergeron who spent some time uh, here at McKenzie. Of course. Uh, So I worked with him in in, uh, FX and Global Macro. That was uh, a very good thing for us. We kind of, uh, we kind of speak the same language and and think about things the same way. Uh, in terms of uh, other people, there's been a lot of people at CPP. I don't want to you know embarrass them with uh, with them feeling that they're my mentors, but uh, there's been a lot of senior people uh, at CPP that that uh, really sets the direction of that plan and just their policies and. How you know you know they did something maybe ten years ago, and a lot of that is still in place. It just speaks to the to the quality of of what that institution and the people who've gone through there and still are there. Um, and other mentors, and this is may not be an investment mentor, yeah, but sure. um, you know, uh, my parents. Everybody talks about their parents, but uh, I'm, I don't want to cheese out here. But my parents, you know, they're immigrants from Portugal, so. Okay. Uh, not necessarily, uh, investors because, you know, for them having cash in a, in a box was, was a great idea for some time <laughs> sure. and getting outside of GIC is a challenge with uh,
1: negative interest rates. Maybe it's yeah, not a bad idea.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's true, but don't tell them that I don't want to okay. encourage that, uh, that behavior, um, but coming in and they've always been entrepreneurs and, uh, you know, seeing how the hard work and the struggles and uh, things going for you and going against you and then just pushing through, um, you know, there are times that even when you make the right decision, things can go against you and understand you're not always going to win. That lesson translates to life and definitely translates to investments. So um, that's that's probably the biggest thing.
1: Thank you very much for your insights, Nelson. We'll now turn to the Byte segment of the podcast where we talk about the current market environment. Today is September 25th, 2019. If we look at the current uh, environment, it's quite dynamic, I'll say. We have negative yields uh, across Europe. Uh, We have uh, the rise of populist governments, uh, Eastern Europe, US, South America, fairly unpredictable. uh, President and Twitter seems to drive markets I know that the most uh, dangerous four words in investing are uh, this time is different, but it feels a little bit different. We haven't seen these things historically. So I'd love to get your take on where you you see markets, but importantly, you referred to uh, relying on computers, relying on models a lot. They take historical data in and, and crunch that. How do you think about using historical data in a time that feels so unprecedented or perhaps I'm overstating things?
0: Yeah. So, uh, uh, I think you're overstating a bit. Um, so look, there's a saying, you know, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. And maybe all of these things together haven't happened, but populism has happened. Uh, negative interest rates have happened. Uh, a lot of these individual factors have happened. And so you're right. Uh, meaning that over the past 15, 20 years, 30 years, this has not happened. And people's recency bias is probably affecting that. But we can look at historical periods to try to take some lessons. And whether it's the 70s, uh, early 70s, late 60s, Uh, Whether it's the 30s, which, you know, paints a bad picture, but that's an area where populism uh, was extremely high. Uh, And we can take a lot of these lessons to give an idea of how these things may or may not play out. Uh, How much you can learn from that uh, may be debatable. But it's to ignore it. I think is to to uh, do yourself some harm. So we have an idea, uh, and we measure, and we th- have an, uh, uh, we think about how these things play out, especially interest rate policy. Uh, we know that the way central banks manage interest rates is very different than they did historically, uh, where now they have inflation uh, inflation targets and mandates, uh, and even economic mandates. Uh, and so you do have to look at history, but understand the scenario is different from that standpoint. Right. Now, where we think uh, the economy is going to be, uh, one, I think nobody would argue that it's going to be noisy. Um, so uh, equities, uh, I don't think this is a negative time for equities. I don't think equities are going to go down 15% uh, percent, uh, from here. Uh, but can they go down 5%? Yes. Can they be up 5%? Yes, a year from now. Uh, we are still pretty positive on equity, but there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and so, and this is where the knowing history comes in, right? So we have the US election where there are several scenarios that would probably be negative for equity markets and understanding uh, that time horizon and how you position through that time horizon is is what we look at. Uh, from the fixed income side yields, US 10 year yields coming down as far as they go, you know, one and a half percent. Right. Um, You know, looking at history, it would say there's no lower than that. Um, But here, I think, is a time you might want to ignore history. Uh, So we like, we think fixed income yields can go lower. Now, uh, you brought up negative interest rates. I think North America, uh, central banks, and really we're talking about the U.S. Fed, Uh, they are also aware of history. So we've seen what negative interest rates uh, have done in Japan. We've seen what they've done in Germany. Uh, And they haven't really stimulated the economy and have been too successful in that area. Um, And so we don't think North America is likely going to head in that direction. Uh, But the central bank is also not going to ignore a slowdown. So whether they act in uh, further quantitative easing uh, or whether they use other tools, uh, which is probably good for bonds but probably won't bring negative interest rates in um, is something they're gonna look at. But again, you know there's a lot of moving moving parts here. Uh, we haven't said uh, Trump, but Trump uh, is an unavoidable. Uh, issue, uh, Trump, and on the other side the Democrat, uh, Democratic uh, race, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Uh, I would say, um, you know, good or bad for the economy, they will move. Prices, sure, uh, and so uh, how that plays out will be a, uh, have a large impact, and it could be that uh, it all plays out, and trade deals with China um, come into play, and the economy and all these things stabilize, and then the central bank doesn't have to do anything, and that would be actually a pretty negative uh, spot for fixed income a good spot for equity. Uh, And so we have to keep an eye on all these things and understand uh, what the range of outcomes is uh, and not load up on one specific scenario um, because there's just dozens and dozens of potential outcomes. Uh, So you have to balance. And this is where the risk management of your asset allocation makes a lot of sense. Don't bet on one thing happening because that exact thing will not happen. Uh, that's the only thing you can be sure of, but trying to, to balance out what you think can work in a bunch of scenarios.
1: So it sounds like your base case is modest growth for equity markets, call it modest for fixed income as well. Would that be fair?
0: Yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think the base case is uh, trade tensions somewhat normalized. There's a lot of motivation on both sides. Uh, An election is motivating uh, 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 Donald Trump to have a positive economic story going into that scenario. Right. And China is currently feeling uh, a lot of pain from trade. They're a very export driven economy. Uh, and, you know, for them, they have a demographic issue, which they're running a timeline against. And there's currently uh, unrest in a lot of parts. And they want a, a good story. Uh, they want a positive economy they want, population uh, feeling more confident about future. And and so they are motivated for a trade deal as well. Uh, So I think in the base case, I think things probably quiet down, but um, it is very unpredictable how these things are going to play out.
1: So given that level of unpredictability, um, it sounds like You know, if I'm thinking about a traditional standard deviation or standard distribution curve, sorry, uh, we'd be at a scenario where you have fatter tails uh, and maybe your base case, you have uh, somewhat less confidence in that. How do you translate that into actually needing to take positions in portfolios and manage client money?
0: Yeah, I I think what you do uh, is... You know, there's a lot of investments that a lot of investment options out there. Right. And so, you know, I've brought up the euro before. But if you think about where you're going to take your active positions, taking an active position solely based on Trump is probably a bad idea. Uh, No insight into what the next tweet is. uh, I really I really have no idea. Um, I'm, I'm sure it'll be funny. I'm sure there'll be misspelled words um okay. but uh but uh, yeah i'm not going to do that but where you can what you can do is you can find investments active opportunities in areas uh that's a little less loaded on that news and so uh you know talking talking the euro currency that's a spot that we think you know in a lot of those scenarios uh we think the euro goes down um and so, finding other opportunities like that, and there are other investments that don't have a high loading on political risk. And so, uh, whether you know you are uh, do looking at credit in companies that have very much uh, a domestic or consumer U.S. loading, uh, or looking at managers who specialize in that space, that type of investment tends to have less political. Risk exposure than uh, say trading uh, you know managers that focus on EM so EM right. can be a spot um, where uh, where you know these types this type of news can greatly impact their performance.
1: Great. Makes sense. So you're really shifting your active risk from things that are more heavily correlated to uh, political risk, sort of traditional equity markets, is that fair to say, and, and reallocating that to more idiosyncratic uh, outcomes?
0: Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've, we actually kind of build these things uh, into the models and, and looking how uh, risks can size your position. So for us, uh, we are we're a little slightly long. I won't say slightly. Actually, it's, it's a decent position. Uh, long development equity markets. Uh, we like uh, U.S. Uh, duration, meaning government uh, bond exposure uh, out on the curve. Uh, and then currency markets, I think, is a good, uh, a good place where you can add some value um, uh, outside of just how normal asset classes do.
1: We conclude these podcasts with a segment on recommendations. Uh, so I'll ask you uh, for recommendations on a series of uh, items. I'll start off with podcasts. Any recommendations on podcasts?
0: Yeah, so uh, I use my podcasts for quick news updates. So, uh, you know, I don't have any big funny comedy podcast, but, uh, FT, uh, has a good news briefing. So think about me, I need to understand, uh, what's going on in the global, global economy very quickly. So I think financial times is a good source. Um, they're a little too UK centric, Uh, you know, you figure that. So I'm, I'm pretty sick of about hearing about Brexit, uh, every day. Uh, but FT is a good one. And, uh, NPR, uh, I think, uh, What you're looking for in the U.S. is somewhat unbiased news coverage, which is almost impossible. Uh, But I think NPR is pretty, uh, pretty decent.
1: Great. How about your favorite books?
0: Yeah. So I'm not going to, uh, so I like science fiction, but I'm not going to embarrass myself on which science fiction. No, 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 no. I'm going to get a hard time from all my friends if I do that. Uh, but I think some books to, uh, I think some books to help people think about, uh, the investment world that are not investment books. Uh, so lessons, uh, of history, um, by, uh, Will Durant, I think is a very, uh, very good one. Uh, even if you're thinking about, you know how uh, you know the move in terms of the social environment we're in, and is it new? And I think you people can learn a lot and how things that we think are new aren't particularly that new. Sure. They have happened for hundreds of years. Uh, and something that I think has helped me understand uh, um, just my own uh, emotional decision making, uh, the power of habit, uh, Charles Dweig. If I pronounce that last name right, uh, I think really opened my eyes and helped control some of my kind of uh, habitual decision makings about how I just eat food or exercise or uh, handle social interactions. I think that's uh, those are two very interesting, helpful books.
1: Perfect. Um, How about uh, any TV shows? Do
0: you have time for TV? I do not have time for TV. I used to make time for Game of Thrones, but I was not a fan. Well, this is where I'm embarrassing myself. Not a fan of the later seasons, so I dropped that. Uh, I will have. I think a,
1: we just lost all of our audience.
0: Now, I, so. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, and, and I will say, a guilty pleasure is those Marvel movies. I'll always watch a good Marvel movie. Uh, it's kind of a relaxing escape from the from the world. Uh, but uh, you know, maybe not maybe targeted towards more kids than myself, but sure. I still enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. I think everyone does. Um,
1: given your background, uh, you're, you're, uh, big into technology. You started your career as a, as a coder, um, master's in cri- cryptography,
0: computer science cryptography is kind of the area of research. Yep. Yeah. Sure. So what's your favorite programming language? Oh, come on. Um, so I will say, so right now we do a lot of stuff in Python, uh, but uh, I do miss the days where, so Python, for those in the audience who code, uh, is a very uh, useful language for doing statistical analysis. But I do miss the uh, C++, uh, C days, where you really had to be a very careful coder in how you manage memory and how you design things. I think a lot of coding languages, uh, and Python's not that new, but a lot of the common programming languages right now encourage sloppy programming so uh which is fine um but uh it's just so much easier now to program than it used to be uh so i kind of uh, i mean the the old guy complaining about the new programming languages they don't understand how it used to be um but yeah so i'd say my favorite uh just for nostalgic purposes is probably c
1: Thanks. Uh, last one. Uh, restaurants uh, in Toronto. Uh, we have great uh, restaurants all around the city. Where's your favorite place to
0: eat? So I'm a big fan of, of burgers, which my uh, waist definitely occasionally uh, is uh, shows a reflection of that, but uh, we have good stuff around here. Uh, so we had uh, Rudy open up uh, across the street, uh, and they have a good fast food style burger. Okay. So I, I like that. I kind of, uh, a bit of a burger guy, so I categorize them into two things. Fast food style burger, think your McDonald's uh, cheeseburger burger and Rudy's is pretty good. And uh, Richmond station has a, uh, a very good gourmet style burger. I would consider them probably the best in the city. You can tell your burger guy when you
1: segment your burger recommendations. I
0: know it's, it's, a, it's an art. It's, it really is an art.
1: Nelson, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions, and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.